Job will be ending, or excuse me, starting, I guess, in just a moment. But we realize that Job is a rather long book, somewhat of a narrative, at least the first two chapters, maybe the last bit of a chapter is a narrative. It's a, it's a historical account, but so, so also is the innards or the, the, the bulk of the letter or the, the work, that these are, it's an historical document of the speeches kind of directed toward one another. Uh, between Job and his three friends, and then a fourth uh, fellow that comes on the scene later in the in the narrative here. Heavenly court, the court scene before God, God enthroned in the heavens, or at least we understand it to be. Remember, it doesn't say that God is in the heavens, even though other places say uh, that. It just said the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and that's what happened, and Satan also came. And so there was this heavenly court that was going on, and it wasn't orchestrated or initiated or anyhow put forward by Satan. This is God himself establishing this. It's God himself entering into judgment, even against Satan, the accuser, accuser of God, accuser of the brethren. But everybody needs to know who is this God? Who is this Yahweh who sits enthroned in the heavens and all this? And is he good? Is he right? Is he worth worship? Right? Is he worthy of praise and honor in his own person, or does he have to kind of you know, give out benefits, kind of bribe anybody that would come after him, which was the accusation of Satan? So we see this heavenly court scene going on, and of course that heavenly court scene spilled over, as it does, into an earthly court scene. And that's where we enter now. We've seen a couple installments of it so far with the ruination, the destruction that Satan brought upon Job, all of his household, all of his, his family, and then upon his person itself or his, you know, his body itself. And we have seen Job respond affirmatively. God is good. And he confirms his integrity before the Lord. So we see, we're going to be seeing this go on and on. Even though the heavenly court scene kind of takes a a back seat for a little while while this, these speeches go on from chapter 4 to um, 37, I guess, is where the, the last of the, the human speeches go on. And the, but the argumentation continues. Is God right? What about Job? Is he right? In fact, that is what's at stake. These two questions. Is Job right? Well, we already know, right? The first verse of the first chapter says, this, there was this guy named Job, and he was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. So, yes, we see Job is right. And not only, as if it wasn't good enough, not only does verse 1 say that as a, as a narrator kind of a sense, but God himself, Yahweh, says twice from his own mouth, Job is a righteous fella. He is good. He is right. Well, the other question is, well, is God right? For all the sufferings, all the calamities that have befallen or fallen upon Job, is God right in this situation? And somewhat the accusation is, well, they both can't be right, can they? Because if Job is right, then God must be wrong, right? Or if God is right, then Job must be wrong. And that's essentially what we see in the course of these speeches. Now, in chapters 4 through 31 is this three cycles of speeches. We see, remember, Job had three friends that we'll meet. We'll meet the first one anyway, Eliphaz, here in just a moment. Again, we've already met him once. But he speaks first. He perhaps is the understatesman, the oldest one, oldest member of the, of the um, triumvirate, the three guys that have come to be with Job. But he always speaks first, and then Job responds uh, to 
whoever just spoke. And then the next one, in this case, Bildad is going to speak. And then Job responds to him. And then Zophar is going to speak. And then Job responds to him. And then they say, they do it all over again. Eliphaz, Job. Bildad, Job. Zophar, Job. The last cycle of this, Zophar doesn't speak. Now, some people have said, well, there's probably, maybe, maybe Zophar's speech has been kind of included in Job, and there's a different, you know, maybe some textual issues going on there. I don't know. It doesn't really matter, ultimately, how that is, because the argumentation, they don't say the same thing. They all have a, a, a different bent or a different approach to things, but they are, they are arguing ultimately the same thing. In fact, here's their approach. They believe, this is their belief that carries them through the whole of their speeches toward Job, suffering follows sin. Job, suffering follows sin. You are suffering, therefore there is sin in your life. And their solution is, hey, just repent, and it'll all be, you'll be fine. You will be rewarded. And so they're, they're, the issue is sin, suffering follows sin, and the solution is repent and be rewarded. Now, it sounds right, sounds righteous. Maybe we've thought about that as well, that, okay, if there's something bad in my life, then ultimately it's got to be because somebody has sinned. But wait a minute, is that really the, the, the right way to approach it? Now, you understand, of course, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did not have benefit of reading the first two chapters of Job. They didn't know, for example, that God himself said Job is blameless, right, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. So their belief is misapplied, does not, uh, does not include or does not apply to, to Job. That situation is, is not real. Therefore, their solution is unfounded. But they, they never get off that path. They, no, Job, you're sinning, or excuse me, you're suffering because you sinned. We don't know what the sin is. We, you know, we've seen you as a righteous person all this time, but obviously, I mean, look at yourself. You're, you're suffering, therefore you are a sinner. And they approach it in different ways. Eliphaz, in this first uh, speech we'll see kind of approaches it tentatively kind of you know you, I've seen it this way and I've seen the, the effects of, of wickedness upon wicked people the suffering that comes upon them and you know you just need to repent and you'll have these rewards these blessings return to you heaped upon your head when we get to Bildad he says I know you're a sinner just come clean you just admit it because cause and effect it obviously works in this you, the cause is your sin the effect is all this suffering so just repent and then Zophar comes along and he he just says some pretty strange things. And we'll get to him in, in just a little bit. And so suffering follows sin. But we have we've saw in the first verse, no. Again, Job is blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. His life is good. Doesn't mean he's sinless, right? But he deals with his sin by coming, turning away from evil, coming, fearing God, and interacting with other people. He had a reputation for being blameless and upright. He's a fair man, a just man, an employer, if you don't mind the the modern parlance, a master of slaves, many slaves, untold, doesn't say how many slaves he had, but to manage all that herd of, of uh, sheep and or just sheep and goats, camels, uh, oxen, and donkeys needed. He needed a lot of people, plus all the agriculture or, or um, growing lands that he had, his, his fields and so forth. He needed a lot of help. And he was known as a, just a godly man. He was, he was Everybody knew it. He was the greatest of the sons of the East. Everybody knew about Job, which is why this was wisely chosen by God. Not some no-name person over in the backwoods of, of some canyon over this way. It's Job. Everybody knows. I mean, you can think of one person's name in, in our modern age. and Oh, if this thing happened to him, everybody's going to hear about it. And he's the best candidate to do it. Well, 
person I'm thinking of, probably not because he's not blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. It's rather not that way. But, but he's, Job is so famous that, that everybody knows and, and everybody is concerned about, whoa, if it can happen to Job, what about me? What's my situation before God? And so this is a learning experience for a lot of people. And it's a revelatory opportunity for the Lord to reveal himself in a more clear way. Because why do these friends have the ideas that they have that suffering follows sin? Well, their argumentation is we've seen it happen. We see you know, that, that evil people do this thing and then bad things happen to them. And that's, that's what we want. That's what we expect. But if you think of it in a little bit different way, we ultimately get back to the accusation of the accuser, Satan, back in chapter 1, who said, does Job worship God or fear God for nothing without cause? Isn't there something that he's after? So in other words, you could see it, see, it, see it this way. The friend's argumentation is an inversion, it's the opposite, of what Satan has accused God of, that piety follows blessing. If you do good, then good things will happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. And then the solution, of course, is the same. Repent and rewarded. You want to have a good life? Well, you just do these certain things. You make sure that you honor God in this way, and you'll have all the stuff that you need. Wait a minute. Is that the reason that we're pious? Pious in a good sense, not pious like in a negative condescending sense, but in a fearing God and turning away from evil sense. Is that the reason? Because we like the rewards? We like the gifts that God gives us. What if he doesn't give us those gifts? Or, in the case of Job, what if those gifts are taken away from him? Right? That's what Satan said. Let's take everything away from Job and see how he does. Surely he'll curse you you to your face, God, Yahweh. Well, that didn't happen. And even when Satan upped the ante, if you don't mind, by touching his flesh and his bone, his body was just racked with pain and, and all these boils and so forth, was that... Was that uh, the issue as well? Piety, Satan says, follows blessing. The friends say, no, suffering follows sin. And it's the same perspective on this thing. And we, we say, no, you know, there's a kernel of truth in this. And that's, that's the difficulty of navigating through these, these chapters of Job. What Eliphaz is saying, that, that kind of sounds true. What Job is saying, yeah, that kind of sounds true too. So what, where's the... What's the problem? And how do we get to chapter 42 when God says to Eliphaz, you and your friends have not spoken rightly about me as my servant Job has me. Oh, good grief. God is is endorsing what Job has said, but do you remember chapter 3? Do you remember Job's lament here? I wish I was never born. Why didn't I die at birth? And why am I still alive? Just the, the rawness of Job's situation. I mean, physically, relationally, materially, lost everything, lost all 10 of his children. His wife is is speaking uh, foolish things, whether ignorant, unknown, she's not aware of things, or if she's speaking wickedly, which, you know, curse God and die, that's a rather wicked thought. And Job says, look, all of my my people hate me, the people that I wouldn't, you know, their fathers, I wouldn't put with the, as, as uh, keepers of my flocks. I wouldn't con- consider them as, as reliable, trusted. Those are the kind of fe- people that laugh at me and mock me and scorn me. I, who used to come into the gate, and, and the wise men, the older men, would sit down and listen to me. Now I'm sitting in an ash heap, and my whole situation has been changed. 
And so he, he laments. He just says, this is, this is horrible. I can't believe it. And Eliphaz, after seven days of sitting silent with, with Job there in the ash heap, having torn his robe, dust in the head, and all these kind of things, says, look, I've got to address, Job, what you just said, because that's not right. In fact, uh, here, when we get back to chapter 4 of Job's um, narrative here, that Job is or responded to by Eliphaz. Eliphaz challenges Job's impatience. I don't have anything else to show on the screen other than what's on your text. So have your text before you. If you need one of those scripture journals, please do help yourself to those. But Eliphaz challenges Job's impatience. Here in chapter 4 and verse 1, Eliphaz the Temanite. Temanite, Teman was known for its wisdom. And so here's a wise man, perhaps older than Job. Later, is it in this speech or another one, where he says, there are people older than your father here talking to you. And so Eliphaz is, is typically regarded as the leader of this band. And, and so he is the one to speak first, known for his wisdom and so forth. And he kind of approaches it kind of in a, um, a backward praise. I'm not sure how you'd say it. Verse 2 says, if one tries a word with you, will you become weary? But who can hold back from speaking? He says, look, you, you've just erupted in this horrible, horrible denunciation of your life. Not that he's suicidal. Job never considered the the opportunity to take his own life, but he says, God, why don't you just cut me off? I'm done with this. I can't stand this anymore. And I wish I was never born, all those kind of things. And so Eliphaz says, look, will you become weary or impatient if I try to speak to you, try to lead you, just as, verse 3 and and 4, uh, say, look, you've helped, you've disciplined so many, you've trained them, you've taught them, you've instructed them, those who are going through similar situations. You have strengthened limp hands. Those are just, they don't have any strength to even do anything, work or even feed themselves. You, verse 4 says, your words have helped the stumbling to stand and you have encouraged feeble needs, knees. rather. So Eliphaz recognizes, wow, Job, you've had such a reputation, such a, a history of helping other people. But now uh, he says, Verse 5, it's come to you, and you're impatient. It touches you, and you're dismayed. He says, look, you're kind of weak, aren't you, Job? I mean, look at you. You're just, the way that you're responding to a minor trial, which it wasn't a minor trial. This was the most extreme, most extreme trial that anybody up to that age had gone through. It almost reminds you of somebody who has been cut off, somebody who has been impugned without reason, someone who is blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. kind of reminds you of Jesus right? Who is that one who suffers things not because he deserved it, and it's not something that, that other people could endure as well. Remember James and John asked to be to see that the right hand, left hand of, of God, of Jesus in the, in the kingdom, and he, and he says, are you able to drink the cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? And he, and he said, yeah. They said, yeah. He says, well, that may be so. James and John both both suffered as a result of their apostolic work, their connection with Jesus. But Jesus said, look, to give you those positions in the kingdom, it's not mine to give. There will be others who follow after Christ's example. But ultimately, Christ himself is that, I mean, Christ himself is that one who is blameless, upright. He is the one who is sinless entirely. Job was on that path, not because of his own innate righteousness, but because a righteousness that was, that was granted to him by grace through faith. Again, fearing God, which includes all those aspects, obeying him, trusting him, turning away from sin, and finding him as our sufficiency. So that's Job. So we see this, this trial, which is an extraordinary trial. Again, verse 5. 
And it's not similar to those other people that Job has counseled or comforted in years past. This is extraordinary. This is, this is excessive. This is exceptional in so many different ways. And so the friend's solution doesn't apply, does not apply in this way. It comes short. But he says, verse 6, Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Here, jo- here Eliphaz is saying, Job, and we know you're a good guy. We, we've seen you for years. We know your situation. We know how, ble- how, ble- how much of a blessing you've been to other people. And so, look, why don't you just rest in that, rest in your integrity, turn away, repent of whatever is going on in your life. Just why do you, don't, don't pursue those things anymore. Suffering only becomes of, comes because of sin. Just turn away from those things and be established in your fear of God, your obedience to him, your faith in him, and so forth and the integrity of your ways. Trust in those things. In other words, trust in your righteousness, not in a self-righteous way, but in a fact, look, there's nothing that I can accuse myself of. I, I have a clear conscience before the Lord. And if, well, if that's your case, then whatever, whatever things that are, are a little bit off in your life, hey, just repent. Turn away from those things. Because uh, you, Eliphaz is ultimately saying, Although it's different. I, th- I think when they first came to see Job, they said, whoa, Job is soft than we even expected. Look at this guy. He's a horrible situation. But then he speaks, and, and then Eliphaz says, oh, we see he has his right mind within him, even though his body is wasting away. And he says, look, there is, there's hope yet for this guy. If he would just repent, God would restore his, his uh, fortune and all this thing. But I'll be fine. It'll all work out in the end. But we see that same principle. Suffering follows sin. The solution is repent, and you'll be rewarded. In fact, he says, verse 7, remember, he's going back, look, we know these things, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright wiped out? He is saying in an ultimate sense, perishing and being wiped out, has the idea of being cut off, not just going through hard times, being killed out of time, uh, dying before your time, we would say, uh, in, our, in our parlance. He says, look, whoever perished being innocent. In other words, the innocent, innocent don't die prematurely, uh, those who are upright, they aren't wiped out. Uh, we, that's not what happens. We, on the converse, we see those who are wicked. Those are the ones, verse 8 says, those are the ones, those who plow wickedness and those who sow trouble. So you plow the, the earth, you're plowing wickedness, and then you sow the seed of trouble in those things. Well, you're going to harvest that. You're going to harvest uh, wickedness. You're going to harvest trouble in your life. And the issue is, Yes, right? Yes and no. Part of the part of the friend's perspective again is it, it's just it's locked in this time period. It's locked in this world. It's locked in this uh, period of life. And God always judges, always, always, always judges the wicked in this life. And Job says, no, he doesn't. He doesn't always judge the wicked. And by the way, why is he judging me? Because I'm righteous. I am blameless. There's nothing I know in my life that is faulty. And so, no, what you're saying, Eliphaz, is wrong. But Eliphaz continued. No, he says, look, we've all, remember now, whoever perished being innocent or where were the upright wiped out? According to what I've seen, those who plow wickedness and those who own, sow trouble harvest it. And he goes on and, and talks about the, the uh, judgment of God in this world and that God is powerful. In, in that day and age, and in our day and age as well, when we talk about mighty, powerful animals, well, we know a whole lot more animals than, than they did. They just weren't exposed to, like, the elephant or the great blue whale or, or these different things. But, but their most powerful animal they could think of was a lion. 
And in these few verses here, verses 10 and 11, there are no less than five separate words that describe either either different lion, lion types, a lion and a, and a lioness, or it talks about different um, life stages of, of lions. It's just the, 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 the point is a couple things. Uh, the language here is, is um, poetic. It's, it's, it's descriptive. It is robust. I mean, you get five different words for lion in two verses. I mean, that, they're, they're, they're saying something. And he is communicating uh, a natural observation. That, hey, look, these lions, they're suffering. God is able to bring suffering upon them, the mightiest, most powerful beast that we know of. And they're, they're hungry. God broke the, the voice of the fierce lion. The teeth are broken and they perish. And the whelps of the lioness are scattered. God brings. God is the one who brings ruination in this life on those who are wicked. Now, lions, I don't know if they're wicked like, like humans can be, but the point is that God is powerful. He's able to do these things. He's able to bring judgment upon those, anyone, that he wants to do it. So he argues from a, a remembrance. Just, uh, we see this model. We see this pattern throughout history that the wicked suffer because of their wickedness or suffering follows sin. We see that God is able to bring judgment upon them. But then he argues from a wholly different way, not a way that he has observed in, in the course of history. Now he, he talks kind of in a mystical, kind of an ooh kind of a sense. And you can read it. I don't, I don't want to read the whole thing. But he has a vision in the night, a spirit coming to him. And essentially the, the message that comes through the spirit, what kind of a spirit is it? Don't know. But it's kind of anticlimactic. What, what does the spirit say? Essentially what Eliphaz has already told us. Verse 17 can mankind be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And the conclusion or the implication of these questions is no, certainly not. No, man can't, mankind cannot be right before God or you know, uh, approved upright before God. Man can not be pure before his maker. God is in the heavens and we're not. We're made of dust. He'll go back to that idea in just a moment. And so being right and pure before God, no, it's impossible. And he argues that not so much as we would argue it in a moralistic or moral sense that we're born sinners, we're, we inherited sin, a, a pattern of, of wickedness from Adam and so forth. He's arguing it more on the basis of we're creatures. We are created out of dust. We are uh, creatures that have to breathe in and breathe out. And we, we hurt, we age, we die, all these things. How in the world can mere mortals be right, accepted, pure before God? Verse 18 says, look, he doesn't even trust or entrust himself to his, his uh, slaves, which he's referring to angels. He, against his angels, he charges error. So even the angels in heaven, God imputes or applies error to. The, he says even them, they're created beasts, created beings, and they, they can't have any relation to, relationship to my righteousness and so forth. Verse 19 says, look, if, if God treats the angels that way, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundations in the dust, who are crushed before the moth? Uh, between evening and morning, they're broken in pieces, and they die. And, and verse 21, is not their tent cord pulled up within them? They die yet without wisdom. Tent cord being that, that thing that would hold up their tent. Uh, and look, when the tent cord is pulled, the whole thing falls down, and they're inside of it, and they're, they're destroyed along with all their dwelling. Just how temporary, how, how fleeting, how fragile even is life. And so certainly, man cannot be right before God, ultimately, in that way. And how, you know, Job, you don't have any expectation. You have no guarantee that God would accept you. What you can only do is repent 
and, and trust him. Leave the, leave the judgment to God because he will do justice always, always, always in this life. Again, suffering follows sin or blessing follows, uh, or piety rather, uh, how did I say it? Follows or, or uh, it rests upon the blessings that we have from God. He says, look, you don't have anyone. Verse 5, or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 1. Is there anybody who's going to answer you? Anybody going to help you come to your uh, deliverance? No. Because, look, if you sin, there's nobody going to deliver. The only thing you can do is repent. Turn away from your sin. We see that, or he sees, rather, that uh, this ignorant fool, verse 3, this ignorant one who, not a, a wickedly fool person, foolish person, but one who just doesn't know, just naive, simple-minded, whatever. I've seen that person taking root or being established. You know, he's, he's prospering. But then I said, no, curse him. This is a foolish person. Uh, his sons, verse 4, are far from salvation. They're crushed uh, in the gate. There's no deliver. And the gate means not just in the the opening of a wall, but where decisions are made, where verdicts, where court is, is uh, maintained. And they're, they're overwhelmed. They're, they're overruled in that because they're wicked. They're sons of the wicked. They're sons of a foolish person. And so there's, there's nothing going to happen well to them. Verse 5, uh, all their harvest is going to be taken away by other people. And then a verse that we know very well, verse 7, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Sparks have this uh, rather unique tendency to go upward, which is who does that? I mean, things come down, right? Gravity works. But no, these are sparks that go upward. And man is born for trouble just like that. It's a, an assured thing. Man has trouble. The solution is repent. God's blessing comes upon those who repent. And so that's his solution. Verse 8. As for me, I'd seek God. You know, Job, why don't you, for a change, why don't you seek God for once? You think, I mean, just slap. It's just, just rude. Eliphaz is trying to be a comfort, at least... We'll take that for what it's worth. The, the friends came. They sat with, with Job. They were trying to be friendly, trying to comfort and console him. But this kind of a statement, you know, hey, if I were you, I'd repent because you're obviously a notorious sinner. God knows all about your sin. Why don't you repent? Why don't you uh, do these things? And then the, the end result of that is God will bless you. You'll get all your stuff back, which, again, it's not a, a wrong idea. The sowing and reaping principle is, is true. It's repeated throughout Scripture. And yet, no, that's not what we're about. We, we fear God because of what he gives us, even in this age. No, you know, if God, would that God gives me, you know, a healthy baby or a long life or surplus in my bank account or, you know, all these, if God would, then I would worship him. I would serve him. We've seen this throughout history. Um, Martin Luther, right, when he was coming home from a place, was in, the, in a great lightning storm, and he prayed not to Jesus nor to God. He prayed to a saint, and he you know, if you deliver me, I'll, I'll serve you. And he, and he became a monk because the saint, you know, saints preserve us kind of thing. That saint did preserve him in that situation, at least Martin Luther regarded that, being part of the Roman Catholic Church at that time. So he based his piety on the blessing that he could receive. He came to the realization, no, grace is what I need. I respond to that. I, I receive that grace by faith, not because of my works, not because of what I can do for God. It's because what of God, what God has done for me, what he promises to give me. And I don't even seek after those things. God can take away those things, which is what Job has already said twice, right? He has already said, I came into this world without anything. Evidently, I'm going to leave the world. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he says again, that shall we not 
shall we only accept good from the Lord and not accept adversity? So he, he's saying it in different ways. God's in control. I can trust him. I don't, it doesn't matter what he gives me, the blessings that I have. It doesn't matter. I want a relationship with God. And so you, you see, we, become to, we come to see in the course of these speeches that the friends are arguing for blessing or suffering. And, and Job, you don't want that suffering in your life. You want to be blessed, right? So fear God and turn away from evil. Repent from these things. And Job says, I don't care about the stuff. I don't care about the blessings or the cursings. I want a relationship with God. I want righteousness before God. I want to know him. And they're arguing somewhat the same things, but the whole reason for their argumentation is entirely different. They're so uh, divergent in their, in their perspectives. Job wants a relationship with God. And thankfully, that's what God gives him. As you can read ahead in chapters 38 to 42. You can read ahead and see what God provided for Job. Now, he did provide, he did restore his fortunes, double for everything that, that was taken from him. But more importantly, Job says, I heard about you before, but now I see you. And I just, I repent. I, I can't stand myself. I can't stand the things that, the words that I was saying. Because he comes to hold on to that thing which God kind of, remember back in chapter 2, that, that God said to Satan, he still holds fast his integrity. And even how Eliphaz said, uh, shall, uh, verse 6 of chapter 4, is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Job, through the course speeches, holds on to his integrity so much that he, he was righteous, that he was blameless, all these things. He was, he was holding on to that so much that he was on the cusp of saying, God is wrong. God is wrong in his justice. And that's where we get chapters 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, God saying, who are you again? Job, is that you down there? Do you know anything at all? Do you know anything? Do you know how to do this? No, Job, I don't know how to. Do you know where this goes on? Do you know all these? No, I don't know all these things. And Job came to realize, I am speaking things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. He is bordering on going from a a man of integrity to a man who is self-righteous so much to find fault with God. Which, by the way, you fast forward 2,000 years to the time of Jesus, did not those who were self-righteous find fault with God? Did not those who, who... rested in their own righteousness, that they were perfect, that they were acceptable to God, did not say, who's this one who tells us we're sinners? What is he about? He, we're blind? Who is he telling is blind? Who is this man from Nazareth? And, and we were followers of Moses. And so they, in their self-righteousness, accuse God of doing what is wrong, being unjust and, and uh, faulty. Something's wrong in the situation. So Job is, in the course of this, you'll notice too as we go along, the speeches of the friends get shorter, so much that Zophar doesn't even have one in that third cycle. But they get shorter and shorter because they can't, they can't make any headway. They've got one tune, and they only play one tune on the fiddle. Suffering follows sin, repent. Suffering follows sin, repent. And they approach it a little bit different ways. And Job is responding, that doesn't apply to me. What's the issue here? I'm right. God is right. How can God be right? I'm right. And it gets to that point of, of Job is almost going to say things blasphemous about God which is why Elihu comes on the scene in chapter 32. See, the problem dealing with a book like this is you have to, 
how do you say everything at once? You think, well, he didn't say this or he didn't say that. Well, yeah, because I say everything at once and you can't all hear it at once. So it's a, it's a fault on both sides. And I, we're, we're trying to get through this. So chapter 5, again, we are realizing Eliphaz's solution, verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8, verse 8 seek God and, and set your case before him. Present your argument before God. And look, he will, he'll give you justice. But again, Eliphaz is locked into this world. He's locked into this, this lifetime. God will give you justice in this life. And he lists a whole bunch of things. And in fact, he says, how does he say it? Um, well, he's going to say it in the next section here. But he says, God does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. Wonders is a word that's used in, this, in the scripture to talk about God's wonder in creation, his creative wonders, the works that he, you know, calling out of nothing everything that is, but also his wonderful work in redemption, not just in salvation from sin, which we, we experience, but uh, works of wonderful redemption like the Exodus. I mean, the greatest example of God's deliverance in the Old Testament is the Exodus, bringing a whole people, millions of people out of Egypt and establishing them in their own promised land. God works wonders without number. And he lists several things. And one of those things, I mean, he shows that God is powerful over all aspects of life, just as Jesus himself is. He gives rain on the earth, sends water on the fields outside. God is able to uh, bring the rain out, and that's what God will return to later in chapter 38, rain and, and water and the water cycle. God gives these things, and he sends water on the fields. He, but also in human life or human experience, he, verse 11, sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to salvation. Their righteousness rewards them. In other words, suffering follows sin, but then the piety follows, or blessing follows piety kind of idea. And so uh, God is able to turn the situation of people. He's, he's able to do these things for his own glory. Verse 15, he saves us from the sword of their mouth. These people, these needy people, uh, needy and poor, verse 16. And we see God doing that in this life. We see that God acts. He, he intercedes for his people. And verse 17 through the end of the chapter, he lists all the blessings. Job, all these things can be yours and more if you'll just repent and trust in the Lord. And Job says, I don't need to repent of anything. I've already done it. Haven't, don't you know, remember back in verse 5 of chapter 1, Whenever his sons and daughters got together for a banquet, he would, he would gather them together, call them together, and he'd offer sacrifices for them. If perhaps, possibly, they might have inadvertently cursed God in their hearts, and so he covered for their sin. If he was so careful to cover for their sin, potential even, in their heart, how much more would he do that for his own life, realizing, I, I, I've, I'm not righteous before God, but by sacrifice, by devotion, by humility, by God's grace, I can be accepted before him. So how much more, again, would we realize, no, this Job is a righteous man. He does receive the blessing of the Lord. He does receive uh, the relationship that he wants. But then, whoa, these things happen. These calamities fell upon him, fell, fell, fell upon him, and then fell again. What? Why? How can this be? I thought I was right with God. I thought, I thought I knew who God is, and I don't understand this thing. And he's beyond himself. Later, at chapter 6, he says, and back here it is, chapter 6 and verse uh, 11, says, What is my strength that I should wait, and what is my end that I should endure? Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze? 
He says, I'm not strong enough to endure all these things. You, God, you think I'm so strong to, to manage all this pain and discomfort and the loss of all things? You think I'm stronger than I actually, I am undone. I am ruined. And I'd rather just die. Job is thinking, as, as Eliphaz says these, these things, blessed is the man whom God reproves. Wait a minute. What's God reproving me for? There's nothing in my life that is wrong. But that's the only solution they have. Again, suffering follows sin. The solution is repent. So God is reproving. God is disciplining. It says, do not reject the discipline of the Almighty. The, the issue that with that is, though, nowhere does God say that even in the first two chapters or in the last chapters, he doesn't say this, these things have come upon Job because of his sin, because this is a discipline, this is a punishment upon him. God doesn't say it. It's not part of, it's not what's going on. So Eliphaz is speaking ignorantly. He doesn't know. He's speaking from his experience. He's speaking from this, this model, this pattern that he, he's, he's seen, repeated throughout history, which is kind of a selective telling of history, by the way. Really, every wicked person you know has received the, the fruit of their wickedness. What about that guy who's so wicked, but he is so pro- he's the richest guy in, in uh, Babylon or whatever. He's, he's, but he's wicked. It's a day's, where is God's justice with him? What are the exceptions? How does your model account for the exceptions of the wicked who prosper and the righteous people who want to have all the blessings and they don't? How does that fit into your model, Eliphaz? Where do I fit into that model? Your model is insufficient. What you think, the basis of your whole cosmology or the way that the world works is as an erroneous principle. It doesn't explain everything. Uh, generally, yes, sowing and reaping, we see this throughout Scripture. We even see very specifically in the Mosaic Covenant, God's promise or relationship with the nation Israel, I will bless you if you obey, I will curse you if you disobey. We, see, we do see a sowing and reaping principle, but that's not what's going on here. That is a specific relationship that God has with a specific people for a specific time, which is not in effect at this day and age because we have this new covenant through Christ. And yet that's how God arranged his relationship with Israel. We see the principle of sowing and reaping and even the blessings of obedience in Proverbs. You know, you uh, seek after wisdom and, you know, all the, what does wisdom have in its right hand? Strength, life, honor. And you want to be rewarded? You want to have long life? You want to have uh, uh, crops that do all? Seek wisdom. So we do see this principle of sowing and reaping. We see it in the New Testament, Galatians 6, 7. Uh, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, that he will also reap. So we see it, and yet they're basing everything on that principle. It doesn't work. Partly because, wait a minute, our hope, our hope as Christians is, I don't want to receive the things that I have sown in my life. I don't want to receive the rewards for disobedience. I don't want to have the, the uh, how does Romans 6.23 say, the wages of my sin. I don't want that. Is there an exception to this principle that Eliphaz, Bildad, and, and Zophar say, no, that's the way it is. Suffering follows sin. The solution is repent. Well, wait a minute. What if, what if, what if is there another way? Is there another way for, not the the, the thing of blessings and cursings and the, and the, the stuff, the, the accessories of salvation. But what about that relationship? Can I have a relationship with God apart from the sin that I can't get rid of? I sacrifice this, I sacrifice this, I withhold this, I turn away from But there's sin that resides in my life. What can I do with that? And the words of Christian or pilgrim in the, in the Christian, uh, the pilgrim's progress, 
he feels the weight of his sin. He has this bundle on his back full of his sin that weighs him down. What can I do? And he runs out of the city of destruction saying, life, life, eternal life. Where is this salvation he can have? Job's hope ultimately has to come not from himself, not from his integrity, not from his self-righteousness, but in Christ, in the righteousness that Christ himself provides by grace through faith, recognizing God is in the heavens, he is faithful. I am wrong. I am wrong before him. When, you, when we compare ourselves to God, I, am, I, I can be right in Christ, but in myself, I am wrong. I need to come to the salvation he only provides. Eliphaz, here at the end, he lists all these things. In fact, verse 19 says, from six distresses, he'll deliver from seven, even in seven. That's just a way of saying, you know, he, he gives not just six or seven, but untold number. I mean, I'm just going to list a few of them for you, he says, but he just gives all these blessings that God will provide for those who, who are sinless or blameless before him. And then he, he sums it up, verse, seven, verse 27, behold this, uh, look at this. We have investigated, and so it is. Hear it, and know for yourself. And he speaks very authoritatively, very convinced in his own mind that this is the way it is. And Job essentially says, "What? Nice sermon, but it, it, no, that you're on the wrong base. I'm a blameless person, and I am uh, full of this enmity. Why? Why are the horrors of God?" arranged against me, verse 4. We'll look at his, his speech here next, next time. But again, this idea of, uh, of that suffering follows sin and that the solution is to repent and be rewarded. Yes and no. No. And that they, again, that's the only thing they know. So that's what they argue all throughout this, this thing. But also this lie of Satan that piety follows blessing. No, we're not pious because of what God gives us. We want to fear God and turn away from evil because that's what glorifies him. If he were to kill us, take our lives away, take everything away from us, yet we would trust in him. Why? Because he's worthy of it. It doesn't matter what he gives us or what he takes away. He can do that in his own prerogative. But we're going to worship God, the living God. To whom else should we go? No one else. The disciples said to Jesus, no one else. You alone have the words of eternal life. It's not about the rewards. It's not about the blessings of obedience. It's about knowing God, and that is the, the end message, the end relationship that Job is just secured in. I mean, he knew certain things about Yahweh. Again, I mentioned before, Job is the only one who uses the name of Yahweh, even though it's used in the narration, the narr- narrator uses it in the first two chapters, but Job is the only one who uses it out of his own lips. The other, other friends talk about God kind of in a generic way, kind of in a mechanistic way. God always, always, always is just, always, always, always uh, renders uh, judgment or calamity upon the wicked and always rewards piety with blessing, always, always, always. And so, Job, you want to get have your stuff back, then just repent. It's, it's right, just repent. Kind of reminds you of uh, Naaman, the Syrian general who had the leprosy and came to the prophet and all this, and the prophet said, go wash yourself in the river seven times. Dip yourself in the river, you'll be cleansed. What? I'm not going to do that. I can't believe. But wait a minute. If you do it, you'll receive the blessing. You see, though, this idea of sowing and reaping, obeying, you obey, you get the blessing, that's throughout Scripture. But to say that's the ultimate, always, that's the rule that undercuts and ignores the gospel. It ignores how blessing can come to those who are wicked. 
You don't deserve salvation. Do you know who you are? God is able to overcome these things because God is just. God is right and Job is right. Remember the, the contest here, what's being argued in this, in this court, the heavenly court and the earthly court. Is Job right? Yes. Is God right? Yes. So what's going on here? What is going on? We'll see more of this as we go along. But God is good and sovereign and right. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you have responded to our cries for understanding. We want to know you better. We want to have a better understanding of you. We want to realize your ways, your ways that are right and just and true, ways that cannot be condemned or found fault with. Who is Who are we to instruct God or say, well, you should have done it this way, or don't you know, or didn't you take into account this, that, and the other thing? No, you know everything, and you know things inherently deeper than we do. You know it not by learning, but by just who you are. You are the omniscient, all-knowing God. Please help us not to go into the folly of the, these friends' argumentation that just a very simplistic view of this world, that suffering follows sin, or to echo the lie of Satan that piety, or that blessing follows piety. We don't want the stuff. We want you. We want to know you better. In fact, Jesus himself says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Please help us to value our relationship with you, not that we'll escape the fires of hell or that we'll have blessing in this life or being free from sin or be free from from sorrow or, or whatever in this life, but that we can know you, that we can cry to you, that we can pray to you, that we can tell other people about you, that we can read your word and have your spirit indwelling us, that we can gather together with your people and rejoice in it. Please help us to steward this relationship with you very well, to guard it, and to not allow any sin to distract us or to take us away from our right relationship with you through Christ. Again, we pray that you'd save any here who are not saved, not trusting in Christ, turning away from their sin, but also that you'd help us to grow, help us to be more like Jesus, to sanctify us in his name. Thank you for this time. Pray that your word would continue to work in our lives, and we are so hopeful. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.